following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Okay. Then in verse 6 of chapter 7, he says this. He says, Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Right? He says the law is ineffective. It will not work. And we've been released from it. Okay? We are no longer under law. And, and he explains that the real problem with the law is not that it's evil or bad, not that it's uh, a cruel trick of God. The problem, of course, is us and sin. And he says that, uh, that, that sin has used the law, it's kind of grabbed hold of it and used it against us in a way that God did not intend. And uh, he says the power of, law, of the law is this. He says, while you were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. Uh, what the law does in us, in our human nature, in our flesh, is it incites us to sinful desire. He says it again later in, in verse 8. He says, sin, seizing an opportunity or using, using the law as a base of operation through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of evil desires. So here's just a basic principle of human nature. Uh, law brings out bad stuff in us. It doesn't bring out good stuff in us. Law brings out the, the weaker, worse parts of our nature and our character. And uh, you need to remember that. Um, so the law cannot make us good. Uh, and it, it's kind of like uh, when I was in about fifth grade, we had a science project, and we were supposed to make some science thing. And so I had this, you know, with my great scientific mind, I was going to make a volcano. So I made this paper-shaped volcano, and, you know, you needed to erupt. So I took, you know, baking soda and vinegar, right, and I mixed them together. What happens? Well, it wasn't as big of an explosion as I wanted, but... Uh, it did foam and erupt, you know. Uh, or we also used to play this game. You take a, a bottle. You don't have bottles so much anymore, but a bottle, a jug of root beer, you know, and you shake it really hard until the lid blows off and spray and foam goes everywhere, right? Certain things, when you agitate them or you mix them poorly, it, it explodes, it erupts. Well, well Paul is saying that the, our human flesh and the law is like, uh, baking soda and vinegar. You mix them together, it agitates things. Right? Uh, the law is like shaking our flesh. And when you do that, it agitates us and it erupts in bad things. So, uh, so for those reasons, Paul wants to do away with law. And he, wants, he wants to move far away from the law. He wants to release us from law. And we as Christians are not to live any longer under the demands and commands of law. Um, <clears throat> well, what does that look like? And does Paul really believe this? You know, you, you can read through the letters of Paul, and you may think, well, Paul seems like a pretty bossy guy. You know, it comes down to it. I think Paul tells people all the time what to do, right? But if you look carefully through this lens of, of Paul's theology... And you look carefully at what Paul writes, you will see that, in fact, Paul is very careful to move away from commandment and law. And I want to look this morning, uh, just as an, an example of this, at 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And we're not going to look so much at what 
the point of the passage is in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul is talking about um, motivating the Corinthians to give, uh, to give an offering to the church in Jerusalem. And Paul was gathering this offering, trying to raise money for the church in Jerusalem, which had been suffering persecution, and, and there had been some um, droughts and famines and hardship. So he's collecting from all the churches an offering, and he wants the church in Corinth to cough up. Right? Uh, he wants them to give. And so he uh, he's heard winds or rumors, or he's worried that they're not going to they're not going to be very generous. And so he wants to motivate them to give generously, right? And I want you to notice his approach. We're not going to talk so much about giving. That's that's what he's talking about. But I want to look at his his example and how he motivates the Corinthians, right? And uh, I'm going to read. Uh, not all of these two chapters, but some chunks of it. And I just want you to get a feel for Paul's tone here, okay? Uh, and his, his really tactful diplomacy. Starting in verse 1, he says this, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, and he's writing to the church in Corinth, what God in his grace has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor. But they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. Uh, And then he goes on, he talks about sending Titus. Uh, We'll skip over that part, jump over to chapter 9. He says, I really don't need to write... Okay, Paul, Paul rarely gives two chapters to anything. Two chapters to this, giving, right? This is a big deal for him. And I love what he says in, in verse 1. He says, I don't really need to write you about this ministry of giving. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> that's, what he, that's what he says. Um, I don't need to write you about this ministry of giving to the believers in Jerusalem, for I know how eager you are to help. And I have been boasting to the churches in Macedonia that you and Greece were ready to send an offering a year ago. In fact, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up many of the Macedonian believers to begin giving. I am sending these brothers to be sure that you are ready, as I have been telling them, and that your money is all collected. I don't want to be wrong in my boasting about you. We would be embarrassed, not to mention your own embarrassment, if the Macedonian believers came with me and found that you weren't ready after all I told them. Uh, and he goes on and he says more. Okay, notice his attitude. Notice his tone here. And in fact, uh, he says specifically in verse... Uh, uh, well, I've lost the verse. He says specifically, he says, uh, I, I, I'm not commanding you to do this. He says, I'm not commanding you to do this. But he's strongly urging. <laughs> strongly urging. Two chapters worth. Right? Um, so what does this look like? I want to go through just briefly and, and pick out a few principles from Paul's motivation of the Corinthians. right? And he is not commanding them. He is not telling them, if you were good Christians, you'd give your 10%. And if you were better Christians, you'd give 20%. Right? doesn't say that. Never uses the word tithe. Never uses command. Never uh, backs them up against the wall. And uses law to inspire them to obedience. But does Paul expect them to obey? Absolutely. Does Paul want them to give? 
Yes. Does he want him to give a lot? Yes. Right? I want to notice how he does it. And, and the reason I want to share that is that we, we need to learn to govern ourselves, govern our families, govern our churches, and govern our Christian organizations by grace and not by law. And uh, as we go through this, I hope you see that oftentimes we don't do this very well. It's so much easier to default to law. Right? It's so much easier. But it's so much less effective. Right? So let's look at these four basic principles that Paul uses here. Uh, first principle is what I call gospel humanism. Okay? Now, uh, if you're much read, you know that humanism is a bad thing. It's the plight of the world. It's the plague of Satan. Right? Humanism is an evil thing. Uh, but I can redeem it by using the word gospel humanism. <laughs> and you'll see in a minute why. Um, uh, notice how he starts off with the, uh, the Corinthians. He starts off by putting up before them the Macedonians. Okay, great ploy, great strategy. Instead of going directly to them, he just holds up a good example of somebody who's doing it right. And the Macedonians were. And he says, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what... God and his kindness has done through the churches, literally through his grace, has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested. Okay, life is tough for them. In Macedonia, the economy was not good. If there was a church that had a good excuse not to give, it would be the churches in Macedonia. Uh, they were suffering great trouble and hardship themselves. But he says, I want you to see what they've done. Even though they're being tested by all these difficulties, and they are poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. Um, here's, the, here's the principle. Law uh, incites in us defiance, resistance, and rebellion. Okay, that's what Paul's been talking about in chapter 7. Uh, if you want to lock somebody in place, give them a command, right? Tell somebody what to do, and you will set their feet in concrete. Right? And I know this from personal experience. Right? I know this because when my beautiful wife, Denise, sa- says, Tim, you need to go do this. Right? <laughs> so it's like putting on the brakes, slamming on the brakes. <laughs> now, do I do it? Well, usually I do. But I don't do it quickly. Uh, and there's something in me that just resists that, being told what to do. Right? Uh, and the reason is, that's the nature of what law does in us. Okay, that's the nature. Paul says over and over again, that's what the law brings out in us. When you tell somebody what to do, this is what you get. You get a stirring of the flesh, an agitation of the flesh that wants to resist commands. And we'll see in a minute why that's true. Uh, he says it in chapter 7 this way, Sin, seizing an opportunity through commandment, produced in me all these evil desires. Right? Uh, so first thing is, we have got to get over, we've got to get over the law, right? We've got to get over it. Because when we live by the law, uh, it constantly freezes us in place, right? If we run our home, if we run our organizations, if we run our ministries, if we run our churches by law, we're constantly going to be battling control issues. Now, you may think, well, yeah, you know, for true godly Christians, if we're transformed by the Spirit, we're going to be just humble people who gladly take orders, Right? Well, that would be true if we still weren't living in an earthly flesh. Okay, we, we have a new spirit. We've been regenerated. We've been made, made new in Christ. But Paul's very clear, next section of Romans, 
that we still live in, in the flesh and the, the flesh is weak and it's given to this battle. So here's a basic thing of human nature. You want to deal with power battles your whole life, you just start telling people what to do, right? And you're going to be butting heads with everybody. And I know, okay, and some of you love this. You know, some of you, my good friend Giuseppe Restivo, I love the guy. First thing he ever told me, he says, I love fighting. <laughs> right? He loved butting heads with people, right? And if you know Giuseppe a long time back, you'll know that, right? You can live that way, and I'm not telling you you can't. All I'm saying is be prepared, right? You start telling people what to do, and you manage your life by rules. You bring out that part of human nature, and Paul, Paul agrees with that. Paul says that's what will happen. Um, so another problem with it is that uh, we, we really need to go deeper than just the law, right? Here, here's a fun game to play. I want you to ask yourself these questions. Um, what is it you really want? Okay? What is it you really honestly desire? Now, here's the problem. If we, if we are still caught in law, right, if we're still living in that place where we're living under law, it's going to be very hard for us to get past that defiant spirit that's in us. And if I say to you, what do you really want? What would really make, you know, what, what do you want? Uh, if you're living under law, your answers will be th- things like this. I want more money. I want more pleasure. I want more sex. I want more power. I want more control, right? Because the law incites those desires in us. And if we're living in the law, those are the first things that come to our mind, right? Now, of course, we all know, well, I can't have those things because they're wrong and sinful. But honestly, I want those things, right? Those are the things I battle against. That's what pulls me, right? And if I could have whatever I want, that's what I would want. And see, law gets us stuck there. But we need to go deeper. And the real question is, yeah, okay, okay, so let's say, let's play, let's play Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's say you're the king of the universe and you can have whatever you want. And you can have all the money and girls and pleasure and power and control and wisdom and everything. What do you hope all that will get you? Right? Well, what was the writer of Ecclesiastes after? What did he want? What did he think all this stuff would give him? Right? Well, if you read Ecclesiastes, you know what he's in search of is, is, is happiness, right? He wants joy in his life. Well, we've got to get past the law to those deeper issues. And we've got to ask ourselves, what do you really want? Well, I believe that every human being, what they really want is just to be happy. But what law does is law tells us, you can't have that. And what our flesh and our sin nature does is says, well, then that must be the thing that would make me happy, right? That must be the one thing in my life that's missing they would fulfill me and make me truly content. So I'm going to pursue that because I'm, I'm convinced whoever's withholding that from me is doing it because they don't really want me to be happy. But here's what happens. You lift the law, you strip all that away, and you start dealing with much deeper issues and say, yeah, what we really do want is to be happy and joyful. We want life to be meaningful and significant and have worth. Right? So how do we get there? What would truly make you happy? What would truly bring your life joy? I love what uh, Paul says about the Macedonians. He says, they are uh, filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed into rich generosity. These people are happy people, and they're giving because they're happy, joyful people. And they have learned a very important lesson in life. And the lesson is this, that true joy, true happiness, doesn't come from getting, it comes from giving. It comes from pouring my life out 
and giving to others. And see, when you can remove law from all this picture, we can get to a much deeper place in our life where we start asking ourselves, what's really going to make me happy? Is sin really going to do it for me? Uh, C.S. Lewis said, I always butcher his quote, but something to the effect that the problem is not that we desire, but that we don't desire enough, right? Not that we want things, but that we are so too, we're too easily satisfied by trifling things to get to the deeper things that would bring true joy and lasting happiness. Uh, So we've got to get past that. And we really need to ask ourselves, what are we really longing? What are we eager for? What do we really want? And I love in this uh, passage, Paul uses this word eager and enthusiastic over and over again. And I won't even read all the references because it would kill you off. But he talks about people who are dying to give. He says, I don't have to command these people because they are eager to do it. It's what they want to do. Somewhere deep down inside there is a longing to do this, to give generously. Um, uh, He says this, um, 8, 1 through 4. Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, about this kindness of the Church of Macedonians. They are are overflowing with generosity. Uh, They did it of their own free will. And they, in verse 4, they begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. Okay, don't you wish your kids would do that? Mom, Dad, please tell me what I can do to be a really good son, really good daughter. I want to just please you, right? Your kids say that often? Um, verse 11, chapter 8, verse 11. Now you should finish what you started. Let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched now by your giving. Okay, um, verse 12. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly, right? Uh, verse 17, Titus, he's sending Titus and a delegate to kind of uh, give them incentive, right? And so he talks about Titus and some of the other delegation who are being sent, right? But notice why Titus goes. He uses Titus as an example. He says, Titus welcomed our request that he visit you again. In fact, he himself was very eager to go see you, right? Lastly, and again, I'm not I'm not quoting all of them, but here's one more. Another, some of the brothers who went with Titus said, we're also sending with them another of our brothers who has proven himself many times and has shown on many occasions how eager he is. He is now even more enthusiastic because of his great confidence in you. Right? Well, why do I call it gospel humanism? Well, humanism is basically the f- philosophy that says human beings are inherently good. Right? that we're born good, and if parents don't mess them up by our dysfunction, that human beings will naturally gravitate to goodness. Right? Uh, and that, that would be secular humanism. Now, of course, we would say there, there's a huge flaw with secular humanism, and the flaw is simply that people are not born good. Right? They're born with a fallen sinful nature given to themselves apart from Christ. People will do sinful, wicked things. Right? So, so we're not humanists in that sense. But it's interesting that humanism itself grew out of uh, the Christian faith. And it really grew out of this principle here, that the transforming work of Christ on the cross has made us truly good people, not in ourselves, but through the power of the cross and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says you died to sin. You've died to the law. You must now live in the new way of the Holy Spirit, right? You're being transformed into a new likeness. And the truth is, because of God's grace in our life, 
we are good people. Now, we still battle with the flesh, and as we look uh, next week at the rest of chapter 7 and into chapter 8, we can identify how we, how we make it through that struggle between the part of us that is good that wants to do right, the part born in the Spirit, and the flesh uh, that's, that's subject to the impulses of sin. Okay? But the truth is there is a part of us deep inside that if we were to ask, what do you want to do? Deep down inside, what do you really want to do? There is in every born-again person, every person who knows Christ, there is deep inside of them a longing, an eagerness, an enthusiasm to do what is right and godly and good. And Paul was confident in this. Paul believed in this. And he tapped often into this reservoir as he dealt with people. He believed that uh, the Holy Spirit would trigger in people the longing and desire to do good. But here's the catch. As long as law is there, law never lets us get to that point, right? Because we get too tangled up with the desires triggered by the flesh. So that's why it's vital that we get away from the law, right? We get away from the law. We get away from that whole system. We ask ourselves, in the Spirit of God and His grace and power, deep down inside, what do I really want, right? What do I long for? If you could do anything in the world, what would bring you true, lasting happiness and joy? Um, under this point, the, the last thing of this uh, gospel humanism is that ultimate joy ought to be the pursuit of our life, right? Our new motivation ought to be being truly joyful and happy in Christ. Now, some of you will think, well, gosh, that sounds terribly selfish. <laughs> you know, isn't that just being, you know, isn't that sin in itself, wanting to be happy? Well, first of all, uh, it's never sin to desire something that God desires for you. God wants you to be happy. Therefore, it's not sinful for you to want to be happy. Right? Now, I know a lot of you come from, Christian, come from churches where misery, uh, gloominess, depression are marks of spiritual maturity. I yeah, that, that's that's not grace. Okay, that's not what God calls us to. God deeply desires for you to enjoy Him. First of the Apostles' Creed to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To know His joy. Okay, He invites us to participate in His joy and glory and splendor. Um, we have to be people who pursue uh, passionately. A life of ultimate joy. Now, of course, ultimate joy is different than quick, momentary, temporary joy. Sin, pleasure can bring a brief second of joy. Paul says, that's, that's not enough. I want long-lasting, eternal, never-ending uh, joy that is unmoved and unshaken by any circumstances. People in Macedonia were, were, were really in serious financial difficulty. They were overflowing with joy. Do you know that kind of joy? Well, the Macedonians knew another secret. Uh, one of the reasons pursuing joy is not selfish is that that kind of joy comes by giving yourself away. Right? Uh, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame, for the joy that was set before him. There is joy in giving yourself away. There is joy in generosity. 
You see, when we ask what we really want, we pursue deeply uh, a life eagerly committed to righteousness. We find that what God calls us to do, what is the path to joy, is a life that is given completely unselfishly. Right? It's given to serving, to giving, to loving, to pouring our lives out to the benefit of others. Um, in our homes, and in, in our own personal lives, in our families, in our organizations, we kind of figure out how to cultivate this atmosphere, right? That you're going to be most blessed, most joyful, your life is going to be most fulfilling and satisfying when you are giving yourself away in sacrificial service to others. There's joy in that. Not as a command, not as a demand, but as a calling to something much greater than uh, the small, petty life that the world lives. Right? So we have this new kind of motivation. Secondly, uh, we are also moved not only by this pursuit of joy, but we also are moved uh, by this relationship of love versus fear. Uh, we are to be governed, ruled by grace. And at the heart of that is this uh, commitment to understanding how much God loves us. Uh, the law works because it brings judgment. Okay, And I, I know this from personal experience from when I was 10 years old. Uh, there were laws in our home. And my life revolved around this, this question. What do I need to do to avoid getting caught? <laughs> what do I need to do to make sure I do not get in trouble? What do I need to do to make sure I do not meet with punishment? And that was the motive of my life as a kid. Right? Not always very successful, but it's what I lived. Because that's what law is about. Law is enforced by punishment. Okay, Rules, if they're broken, come with some kind of judgment. Uh, when we live under the law, we live under the uh, demands, threats, uh, condemnation of the law. Um, what this looks like in, in parenting, uh, and I don't want to you know, open a can of worms, but here, here's the truth. If your parenting style is one of uh, putting laws on your kids, then your parenting style will be a lot about punishment, right? Whether it's, pain, whether it's spanking, yelling, threatening, grounding, locking them up in their room, whatever. Um, that goes with the law, right? Uh, and I'm not saying all of that is always bad. And, you know, the question here, which I, I don't have time to go into this morning, but uh, the question is, you know, if they're not a believer, does law apply to a believer? The, what we're talking about here is gospel humanism. We're talking about people who are transformed by the law of Christ. If your kids haven't come to Christ yet, are they supposed to be under law? I'll let you wrestle with that. I'll let you wrestle with that one. Interestingly, Paul doesn't. You read through his letters. He moves away from law. Okay, he moves away from it. He pursues a completely different path. Right? Um, and, and, and here's the problem. Okay, we're going back to the parenting model, using fear, punishment, threats, and demands to enforce the law of our home. Right? Uh, if a child follows the law and complies, why have they complied? Right? Why have they done the right thing? Is it because they strongly are convinced the right thing is good and right and it's what they really want to do? Or is it because they fear punishment? Well, I can only speak from my own personal experience. 
And I had, you know, many years as a child growing up, and I can guarantee 100% of the time, the only reason I did the right thing was because I was trying to avoid punishment. Okay? The law never taught me the value of doing good or doing right, right? I didn't pursue good for the sake of goodness. I simply pursued the right course of action to avoid punishment. So that's what punishment does. It sets us up with a mindset I gotta protect myself from coming judgment. And I don't think about what is the good or right course of action. Um, it does not change, uh, it does nothing to change the nature of, uh, of desire in me, of desiring to do what is bad, uh, into desiring to do what is good. The law cannot do that. That's Paul's point. The law cannot Make you want to do good. In fact, it does the opposite. It stirs up in us the desire to do wrong. Right. Uh, so we want to move away from that in our families, our homes, our marriages, our organizations. So if you take that away, well, what do you use to motivate people? Well, Paul uses love. He uses grace. He uses strongly and powerfully uh, the overwhelming, infinite, unconditional love of the Father for us. Uh, notice what he says to them. In verse 8, he says, I am not, oh, here it is, verse 8, chapter 8, I am not commanding you to do this. I'm not commanding you. But I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of other churches. He says, I want to know, I want to test your love, your heart. But then notice what he says. What is the basis of our love or our heart? Notice what he says in verse 9. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. God loves you. He loves you so much he sent his son who gave up all the wealth of heaven to become poor for you. That's how much he loves you. Chapter 9, verse 7. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully, and God will generously provide all you need then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Okay, God loves you and he wants to do this in your life. Um, people will follow rules because they fear you, uh, but they will seek to please you because they love you. Right? Here's a problem with uh, a lot of our parenting. The truth is I know every parent here, you love your kids unconditionally. You know, I, I don't doubt that for a second. You love your kids. There's nothing your kids could do to mess that up. I believe that. I know that. I believe that was true for my dad as well. I believe my dad loved me unconditionally. But I only believe that now as an adult. I did not believe it as a kid, right? Because that was not the message I got. And what law and punishment does is it's, it communicates a different message. It says to you, I love you if you keep the rules. I'll be happy with you if you do what I say. If you don't do what I say, uh, love gets compromised. And I was convinced my dad only loved me when I behaved well. And it created all kinds of problems for me when I got saved and I came to have a relationship with my heavenly father. And I was pretty convinced God was the same way. God would love me only if I did what he said, if I followed his commands, if I was a good son. If I failed, I wasn't so sure that God loved me anymore. 
right? We don't want to communicate that message to our kids. We need our kids to be convinced that we love them no matter what, right? That our love is unshakable, unchanging, right? So how do you do that? Well, does that mean we don't discipline our kids? No, you discipline your kids, okay? Uh, discipline your kids, but, but do it this way. Always do it with a smile, all right? Okay, because there's nothing worse than getting disciplined by a happy person, okay? And, um, and it confuses kids, right? And you say to them, you know, I love you so much, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with this because I love you, and I, I'm happy, uh, but you have a problem, and, uh, but it's no problem for me because I love you. It's kind of a sad day for you, right? And, uh, you know, you want to lock in empathy, that you empathize with their mistake, right? You understand it's a stupid thing they did and there's consequences. You, you feel with them for that, right? But, but you love them. You love them. There's huge, huge power in that. Because here's obedience. Obedience, the biblical description of obedience is not compliance to a law. It is the willful decision to do something to please God, right? I love God. I can't believe what he has done for me. And so I want to live my life in a way that pleases him. So I obey him because I want to do the right thing out of my love and gratitude and affection for him. Okay, last one. We're out of time. Uh, this one real quick. Uh, giving choices. Uh, we, are, we were made by God to be free agents in the world. Okay? God created us as beings who could make choices. It's part of our nature as human beings. Uh, the problem with law is law takes away all choice. Okay? Law says, I've decided for you. Uh, this is what generosity looks like. If you want to be generous, you give 10%. Okay? And that's it. Okay, I've decided for you what it is. Uh, and because God made us as free agents, uh, because he created us as beings who can make moral choices, who can act freely and independently in the world, uh, we feel ripped off when we're not given choice. Right? Uh, we feel trapped. And the, the truth is, if, I, if I'm told you give 10% and I give my 10%, how do I know why I gave it? Right? Am I really giving it out of love, out of gratitude, out of generosity? Or am I just doing what God's forced me to do? Right? God doesn't want that kind of devotion and worship. He wants people who willingly choose to love and follow him. Uh, in this passage, again, I won't go through all the references, but over and over again, he highlights and emphasizes their free choice in this matter. Uh, he says in verse chapter 9, verse 5, So I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promise is ready. But I want it to be a willing gift okay, of your own free choice, not one given grudgingly. You must decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. Uh, the beauty of the gospel is that God now gives us choice. Right? He gives us incredible choices. Um, speaking of giving, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll hear all kinds of differences of opinion on this. You know, is there a tithe? Do you give a tithe? Is it ten percent? God wants you to give willingly, joyfully of your own choice. New Testament doctrine, I believe, and some of you will agree, do not agree with this, that's okay, but I believe clearly New Testament principle is God doesn't set an amount, right? He doesn't say 10%, 5%, 20%, 50%, right? He says give 
willingly. Later on in this passage, he says, don't give yourself to poverty, but give generously, right? Uh, give as God leads as you decide. Okay? There is incredible power in being able to make a choice. Incredible power. Do we give people under us the opportunity to make choices? Uh, you know, I, 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 I don't want to pick on anybody, but, you know, uh, wives, don't, don't ever tell your husbands what to do, okay? Because it just takes ten times longer to get it done. Okay, I'm just telling you, it's just the reality, okay? Whether it's nagging or not nagging or whatever, I don't know. I'm just telling you, if you say, you need to do this, okay, it's going to take ten times longer, right? Give a choice. You can say it like this. You know, honey, I noticed the sink's still dripping. You don't have to mention it's been dripping for three years. Just, you know, don't go there. Say, so, you know, honey, um, you know, I know you're super busy. You know, would, would you like to fix it or would it be better if I called the plumber? You know, just give him a simple choice, right? And, uh, you know, and every guy's going to not let, you know, his, his, his macho-ness be insulted by calling the plumber. He's going, no, I can do it. I can do this. You know, two minutes later, man, he's got the, the wrenches, the pliers, he's going to town. Okay, I'm telling you, it works. It works. Husband, same thing, you know. Uh, incredible power and choice. Instead of telling your kid, you know, get, hurry up and get dressed. So, you know, would you like to put your clothes on in your bedroom or in the bathroom? You know, simple choice. And the kids get, so they get confused. They're trying to figure out, okay, what would be better, the bathroom or the bedroom? I'm so confused. See, they don't, they don't recognize you're actually giving them a command because it gets lost in choice, right? Incredible power, right? And Paul understood that, right? He understood that when he gave it back to them and said, you decide, right? You decide. And then once they've made a choice, uh, and, and Paul, and I won't go ahead and read, read it, but, but they had decided, this, they had started this a year ago. The Corinthians, when he had been there, had been eager to give, right? They had made a choice. Here's the power of a choice. When, when somebody makes a choice, you have great authority to hold them to their decision, right? Now, if I make a command and i got to enforce my own commands, it's, it's a power battle. But when you say to your kid, you know, do you want to come home at, would it be better for you to come home at 10 or 10.30, right? It's a choice. Okay, now he's not thinking midnight. He's going, oh, i got choices, 10 or 10.30, right? He says, I'll come home at 10.30. Great, come home at 10.30. He comes home at 11, right? It's no longer you, the bad guy. You're saying, hey, you said you were coming home at 10.30. You know, I'm going to hold you accountable to your choice. So that's exactly what Paul does here. He says, you, you, you started this giving. I'm just, I'm just making sure you keep your commitment because I don't want you to be embarrassed when we all show up, right? And you haven't followed through. Uh, great power when you can enforce somebody else's choice rather than your own, right? All right, we're out of time. There's more, but we're out of time. Let's pray. Father, we just do thank you so much for grace and how the cross really changed so many things that it really is a new covenant a new age and a new era where we live uh, differently where we serve you differently Uh, and yet Lord I just know in my own life how easy it is to go back to the place of law especially where it applies to other people where I have to govern or manage others, how easy it is to slip into command and telling and demanding. 
and threatening. And uh, Lord, that's not what you called us to. And that's not what Christ accomplished through the cross. We are new creatures. If we have truly been born again, there is a part of us that desperately longs to do what is right. And as we grow to have a greater understanding of your love, it produces in us uh, a desire to please you. Lord, teach us more about what all this means and how to govern our lives truly by grace and not by law. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.